Helen, thank you so much for being on the Founders to Leader podcast with me today. I've been so excited for this episode because for context of people listening, we know each other and we met through Riverford, which we're both independent trustees of, and I've just been so impressed with your experience. I usually start these episodes with what seems like a simple question, but I actually find it stems quite a lot of conversations from it. How are you? How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Thank you. I, I love January. It's a sort of month for me that's kind of full of possibilities. You love January? Yeah, no, I do. Because it's sort of, it's the start of a, a it's a bit like a new term, mm. but a whole new year and um, lots to look, you know, lots to look forward to, I think this year, sort of work-wise and, you know, doing a bit of travel. So really looking forward to it. You went to, was it Peru? Peru, was yeah. that How was that? How was that whole? That was amazing. I absolutely love Peru. It's the most extraordinary country. And, and this year I'm going to India and Japan. So two very different cultures again. Is that also the end of the year or? No, that's um, that's kind of springtime. So wow. I'm going to get out and see the cherry blossom in Japan, hopefully. So that's um, amazing. Yeah. What do you love about going to these different places? Is it learning the different cultures yeah. as well? Yeah. yeah. So for me, it's it's everything. It's the kind of culture, the people, the food, the, the textiles. I'm a textiler. So, you know, love all of that. The craft work. Um, I just I just love I just learn so much mm. um, and that I, it just keeps me keeps my my brain ticking over oh, I love it did you find the Peru trip refreshed you a bit sort of made you excited as well for work yeah, yeah it did actually it really it really got me thinking because a lot of the people in Peru it's pretty subsistence farming mm. um got me really thinking about the Riverford piece and and actually um you know how people can kind of thrive on really very little um mm. and what's important in life it, it I've I've spent quite a lot of time reflecting since then yeah I want to start with just in general your experience, how you got to here, yeah. what, what you're doing now. So I know obviously you were at John Lewis for a very long time. Yeah. You worked your way up through John Lewis. I guess yeah. I'd love to, obviously whatever you feel comfortable sharing, mm. but I'd love to just know what changes did you see culturally in the company over your 20 years that you were there? But also if you've got any other things where you're like, it, from going from sort of more junior role to a really senior role, yeah. what changes did you observe doing that? Because I yeah. think... A lot of that loyalty doesn't really happen a lot nowadays no. in the modern world. There's a lot more jumping ship. Yeah. Whereas historically, you also find so many people just worked, you know, 30, 40, 50 years in the same company. Yeah. And I kind of like the idea of that. So yeah. I kind of want to just understand a bit more, like what changes you saw, what made you want yeah. to keep staying and stuff like that. I think kind of... <sighs> I mean, when I joined, I had no intention of, of staying. I mean, in fact, it was more than 30 years I was there. Um, I, I joined and I thought it'll be two or three years and then I'll find something else. Um, but the amazing thing about both John Lewis and Waitrose was that it kept, it would spot something in you and then it would give you a new opportunity. So I never actually did a job for more than two or three years. And then I got moved on to oh. something, you know, more something different or something bigger or something you know new and so I felt as though I was sort of reinventing and learning the whole time um, and I love that I worked in you know John Lewis for 15 years in lots of different branches different roles then I moved into head office then I moved out to Bracknell to Waitrose and I moved back into head office um, and I think I had something in 32 years I had something like about 20 different roles so you know really really interesting um, love the business. Do you think that's the do you think that's the secret then to staying with an organization for long is having that constant change? So I think what a lot of people find sometimes is they might get to a point and they don't have any maybe progression opportunities. Yeah. Or they're not really sure, especially maybe in smaller organizations than John Lewis. But do you think that is something that also helped you is actually just keeping it fresh because you didn't have to look anywhere else no, for a role. Exactly. You could have, you could find that in the same company. I, I think that is a very real challenge mm -hmm. is because people want to grow. They, they naturally develop um, and they want to try new things. And so, 
you know, if if you can't do that within an organisation, mm. um, I think people will, you know, if they're, if they're, you know, sometimes actually that that's enough for for people, but sometimes actually if they want to keep growing and developing, they 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 have to go somewhere else and change. So that's what a big organisation can do. It can it can um, and it should, in my view, constantly be looking at how to develop and grow people. Um, did you find that you wanted the change of roles or did they just come to you, if that makes sense? So were you quite hungry for constant change or was it because the constant change came at you that you found yourself in a that bit, scenario? A bit of both. Um, I mean, you know, John Lewis and Waitrose changed dramatically through the 90s and noughties. Um, and so there were lots of opportunities to grow. Um, and, you know, a couple of times, in fact, when I was asked to be personal director of Waitrose, that came completely out of the blue. Um, hadn't anticipated that at all. Um, and that was a bit scary, if I'm honest. And I, and I took a bit of time to think about whether whether I thought I could do the job. Um, what were you before when you were asked? So I was role? on the board, but it was a sort of a more of an internal NED role, um, which I was thoroughly enjoying at the time. Still thought I had lots to do in that role. Great team that I was leading. Um, and so when the managing director said, actually, I, you know, I want you to move across into um, personnel director as it was then, you know, HRD, I was a bit, oh. Um, but it, you know, there, there was a lot to do in Waitrose then. We were growing really quickly. Um, and so it was it was an amazing job. I um, did that for five years. That was the longest I, I think I ever did a job, um, but loved it, really enjoyed it. Yeah. How big was uh, the John Lewis Waitrose partnership? How big was that at the point when you joined the company compared to when you'd left? You know, in terms of employees. So when I, when I what when I first joined it in nineteen eighty, uh, I think we were about forty thousand something like that. It more than doubled. Um, doubled. So it was about ninety five thousand when I when I left in twenty twenty. What challenges does? What challenges come with sort of like doubling a company of that size? Like obviously you moved into the personnel role, so you probably had quite a unique perspective on. Math, internal matters yeah. but like what kind of changes at that level because you sort of think smaller companies that go from you know 30 40 people to about 50 60 they experience challenges i can't even begin to fathom a 40,000 person company going to 80,000 yeah. it's about leadership so, so the leadership is really important to keep the kind of culture um so one of the things that was so brilliant about john lewis and waitrose is they really people were really important and so, you know, when I first became a department manager in, in John Lewis Oxford Street, I remember my boss saying to me, you've got, you know, this is your team now, you know, and, you, you know, they're, they're in your care. And he used the word care. And I think, you know, that's unusual because, you know, you, it, it became a work family, really. And so people cared about each other as well as working really hard and, and you know, looking out for each other. And so when we opened a new Waitrose branch, we would, if it was completely from scratch, we would put in a branch manager that was really experienced um, and quite a few team members who really understood Waitrose and our culture to help, you know, bed that in. If we bought a, a shop, if we kind of acquired one, we would take out the present branch manager, put in one of our own. And then literally do a swap so that, that again, that culture, you know, somebody who really understood how we worked, how we, how we looked after our people, how we looked after our customers, would kind of go in there and sort of develop that culture um, and, and work alongside all of the acquired um, partners so that we could help them, you know. And it was normally very different, the, the culture for them. So it could, it could have been quite a shock for them. Mm. I guess that's the way you keep it quite consistent wherever you are, wherever you yeah. open up a branch. You get the same experience. Exactly. It's interesting. Exactly. I guess as well, like obviously 
barring sort of recent media news and stuff, in general, John Lewis waitress, I think they're seen as like the epitome of like an example of employer ownership and sort of like culture in the UK. What what sort of did you see in practice over your time that has stuck with you? Has there been like one thing that you sort of saw, this is what we did in these places and that stuck with you now in terms of the, your own coaching and stuff yeah. like that as well? So it, it, it is all about the people. Yeah. So, you know, I think if you're not careful, it's very easy to, you know, you give somebody a role profile and they rock up and they do that job and then they go home again. And when they go home again, they're a scout leader or, you know, they're a carer or they work for John's Ambulance and they've got this whole other existence with these different experiences and skills that, you know, they could bring to work if you let them. Mm. Um, and most people don't even think about that. They don't think about how do I allow this person to bring their whole self to work, all of their skills, all of their experience, and maybe use some of that that's outside their job description, their role profile, but that will better the business in some way. And I think John Lewis and Waitress were brilliant at that. They they genuinely wanted people to be themselves, be their best selves, look after those customers really, really well. And they had this sort of thing called the kind of customer partner profit kind of circle. So, you know, the premise was that if if you looked after your customers really, really well, they would come back time and time again. They'd talk to their friends and spend more money. The money would then obviously become more profit. The profit would either go into bonus or opening new shops or new opportunities for partners. That would make partners happier, better people, more opportunities. Therefore, they would give better customer service. And so, you know, it's it, so a cycle. Works. Yeah. Mm. Um, and I think that genuinely, you know, genuinely works. I guess based on that, based on what you just said, then why do you think so many businesses just get it wrong with their people strategy? Like, we, we spoke about it just before we actually came yeah. in here, but just in general, like people is usually very low on the priority list yeah. of things we need to do really well. Usually it's, you know, money, profit first. Then it's, if we've got investors, it's them. Yeah. Why, why, why is it that people just aren't such a focus for so many organisations? I think, I mean, people are complicated. Um, it That's takes true. time. Um, you know, it means you've got to communicate. You've really got to think about it. But I genuinely believe that people are your best asset. And if you can bring the right people into your business and they really love working for you and they're going to stay um, and, you know, and you're going to allow them to continue growing and developing, then actually half your job's done for you. Because, you know, I used to say to my team quite often, particularly in the shop, um, you know, tell me the stuff that actually I don't see that you think might need changing or making better. And they would always have a list. And so, you know, they'd be doing half my job for me because actually if you then give them the skills to actually get on and make it better and change it, then they'll just keep doing that for you. Um, and so I think, you know, if, if you genuinely work in a really collaborative, encouraging way, your people, A, will do more for you, but also they'll, they'll love it. They'll, they'll continue to grow and they'll want to come to work and they'll want to stay. Um, do you think that that's changed at all over the years in any way? Because obviously we live in this society now we're sort of seeing but obviously with remote work there's a lot more sort of like remote only kind of like jobs out there there's a lot more people now that you know naturally obviously covid i think yeah. develops a lot of anxieties for people so they don't want to go out of the house anymore a lot of people now have found work-life balance yeah. they found it this is perfect for them do you think like anything has changed in that where even if a company really dedicates you know a lot of resources in supporting developing their talent and their people 
a really safe space to work, etc. Yeah. Do you feel like that's still enough? I, I think it is tough. I think it's tougher to do it mm. with remote working, very definitely. Um, I mean, shops is easy because obviously people have to be present. So it's, yeah. you know, that's a that's an easy, you know, a, an easy win. But I think if you're, all of your workers are remote, that's really hard. And I mm. think you've got to be really creative and thinking about how do you enable people to kind of develop when they're on their own. Um, and again, that yes, that absolutely might might really suit them in some ways. But I do think you miss out on that whole team kind of dynamic being with people. Um, and so, I, you know, I think it's really important when, you know, a couple of the boards that I work for, of course, we didn't meet, you know, um, in person during kind of COVID. We were all locked away. But we, we all realised that we were missing uh, a con connection. So quite quickly, I think people started to, where they could, um, meet up again. And, and clearly there are, you know, days when it's really sensible to work mm. at home. But... Um, I'd always encourage where you can and it's and it works to be together on the development side then as well so like say if a I don't know a company founder of a team of 10 at the moment is listening to this yeah there's not tons of development opportunities yeah. from a progression standpoint if they're listening to this sort of thinking how do I keep my talent yeah what, what sort of ideas do you have or if that was like a coaching client of yours for yeah. example like what would be the first things you'd look at to say here's how we really attract and keep the talent, even though you're a small company, even though you can't offer them incredible opportunities or perhaps even high salaries yeah. like your competitors. What are the things you look at there to try to start to map out some yeah. kind of people strategy? So I think for me, it's about, you know, really sharing with your team what you're doing, where your, you know, your goals and your dreams are, kind of mapping that out, um, seeing whether actually they've got ideas to be able to contribute to that. And that may be something that, as I said, is outside their immediate role profile. But actually working in a really kind of collaborative way, constantly kind of talking, constantly trying to give them where you can opportunities internally, but also then maybe externally, you know, actually allowing them to have time off to go and do things that will develop them because they'll come back with more ideas and they'll come back refreshed. Mm. Um, and, and so I think it's, you know, where you can, it's it's kind of constantly talking to people as well. You know, where do they want to be in five years' time? Chances are it may not be with you, but actually that's okay because actually I would always much rather have somebody that was really engaged, working really hard for me for a couple of years than someone that's just going to kind of plod along and really be a bit disinterested for five or six, mm. you know. Yeah, I don't know if you saw, I did a, a recent LinkedIn post which was sort of celebrating Dan and Livia who yeah. we hired when we were really small. And like yeah. I always use them as an example yeah. of, we hired them. There was literally like, we're talking like three of us, I think at the time, including me and Sam, a co-founder. And I remember we did the interviews for them in, so in the meeting room, it was so disorganized. We had yeah. Olivia and then Dan walked into Olivia's mid interview because we were running late with yeah. hers. It was so badly organized and we were tiny. We didn't have time yeah. to, you know, think about so much. But one thing that we did do right from the beginning, beginning is we said, we're going to develop these two as well as we can. And if they're not here in two years time, yeah. that's fine. But as long as they look back and say, I learned so much from Antonio yeah. and Sam in their career, we're happy with that. Yeah. Obviously, five, nearly five years later, they're still with us. Yeah. So I definitely think there's something there around the whole, even if you can't offer the world to someone within the company, just care, develop, yeah. Yeah. ask, be interested exactly. and listen. And I think a lot of big organizations, they lose that because... Yeah. There's so many people, I yeah. think, involved in that process. Exactly right. I think if you, you know, genuinely, I, I love it if actually people leave to go on and do something bigger, better, more exciting. If they leave because they just don't want to work for you, hmm, you know. Mm. Um, I just think if, you know, you spend so much time at work, you, you know, you've got to try and make it 
really interesting and fun for people to be there because, um, yeah, I mean, like, you know, that's what life's about, isn't it? It's, it is. It's, I mean, um, the one thing I hate, I always say, is I, I don't really like coasters at work. Yeah. So, you know, people that yeah. they just they're just there, but they don't really want to be there, but they're there because it's good to be there. Yeah. That's something I really, yeah. I don't know what it is. It's like each their own always. But something that just grinds on me because I just think if you're going to be in that, either don't be in it. And if you want to go somewhere else, I will fully yeah. support you with that move or just be fully in it yeah. and just give as much as you can. There's, yeah, there's, there's yeah, I think there's definitely a psychological. My my mum once said to me, um, I was she wrote to me when I was 18 years old, all the things that she wished she'd known when she was 18. It's an amazing thing to do. And the last sentence was measure the success of your life by the impact you have on other people. And that has always stuck with me because I think that's such a powerful thing. Um, and when you're in business, you have so much impact, you know, potential impact on people. And, you know, for, for good or, of course, for bad. Um, but why wouldn't you use that for good? Why wouldn't you feel whether that's customers or, you know, the people that work for you, you know, make that as good as it possibly can be because they'll then return that. Because I always like follow like these... Uh... There's like loads of these the, these accounts that do loads of like I don't know posts and stuff around this sort of thing. So it's like internal, like how the workforce is changing, and there's so many arguments both for and against it. Where it's like people are saying, "Oh, if you're going to go into it, you might as well work really hard." So you've got one half which are like, "I'm just going to give it my all if I can," but then you've got the other half that are saying, "Well, I'm not going to give my all into something where my employer is not giving me my all, nor am I being paid fairly." Yeah, that's I think a really difficult line, the grey area that we're currently in is employers being like, "Well." I feel like we are paying fairly. Employees being like, I'm not. And then you go to another employer or company and they think, yeah, I'm being paid fairly, but they're probably paid the same. Yeah, That's an interesting conversation around the whole, how are you satisfying everyone's needs yeah. at work that yeah. I don't think people, don't know, vocalise probably enough. I think that's right. And I think, but for me, pay is just one element of mm. why you come to work. And I think, you know, look, you know, certainly within John Lewis and Waitrose, certainly senior leaders could have earned more money if they had gone and worked for other bigger retailers. But we stuck at it because we loved it. We loved that business. And actually, you know, if you're genuinely doing a job where you start to feel that people care about you, you've got opportunities to grow. Um, there are, you know, sort of team events. You have a bit of fun. You know, all of that that actually more than makes up for just, you know, for, for pay. Um, it, you know, it's important. But I think, but there is a, there, I think there is a danger of kind of wanting your cake and eating it. I think you, you know, um, I mean, it's interesting. I've, you, you know, I've got a son that's 23 and some of his mates and, and and they're sort of, I think they almost want to skip that working quite hard. And I keep having to say to them, no, 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 you have to kind of, mm. you know, you do have to put a bit of hard graft in. Um, it doesn't just kind of land in your lap. Um, so I don't know where that change has happened a little yeah. bit though, because I, I think I was talking to someone recently about it, and it was like saying how I used to, I couldn't afford to live in London when yeah. I first got out of uni. So then I remember I lived in a place called Huntingdon near yeah. Cambridgeshire because that was the only flat yeah. I could afford. But then when I moved to London, I was on uh, I think the salary I was on starting salary was nineteen thousand pounds a yeah. year. But then so that was whatever it was like eleven hundred and something take home at the time many years ago. And then, but 780 of that went on rent. Yeah. And then 600 went on train ticket. Yeah. I've already gone into my overdraft. And that's before even like food yeah. and stuff. And I remember thinking like, but this is okay. I'm in massive debt, but I'm yeah. going to get out of it at some point because I need to do this. That's right. And maybe that was a mindset thing. But now I meet a lot of people who are saying, 
you know, I don't want to work. I, I don't want to do this. Yeah. And that's fine for certain people. But then I also think you've got so much potential and we can see it in you. Yeah. You've got to start somewhere. But a lot of people are coming to us, even like junior sort of level coming to us being like, I want a job in this and I want, you know, 35 grand starting salary. And I just think even if any employer wanted to do this, it, it's just not, it's not realistic. Feasible. You can't like, how, what sort of an ask is yeah, this? Right. So it is just finding that balance, I think, it, at the moment of yeah. communication and transparency and just being a really fair employer, Yeah. but not, you know, taking the mick, no. I think. Yeah, and I think the trouble is as well, you know, social media has so much, you know, to play with this because everybody sees that, you know, others have got all these things that they want and actually, you know, I mean, you know, like you, I'm in my very first flat, you know, I, I, I literally had, you know, I was sleeping on an army camp bed for, you know, months mm. before I could afford, you know, to buy a proper bed. I mean, it was, you know, yeah. um, but that's how it, that's how it was. Uh, it's how it was and how it is. Yeah. Things sometimes. Yeah. Um, on the, you used the word impact about five yeah. minutes ago. Mm. Um, you're now a coach and obviously yeah. a trustee. I think a lot of people would see that as probably a natural career progression for someone who's been really senior in such a large organization that is probably seen as the right transition to make as you now coach others to do a similar thing. Did you know you'd always wanted to become a coach at the point where you knew you'd leave John Lewis? And whatever the answer for that is, what do you love most about coaching? Is it the impact piece? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I was very lucky. So again, one of the things that John Lewis did was they had a bank of internal coaches. So um, we were fully accredited coaches. So they took us through a whole load of training that was accredited. And then we would coach um, other partners within the business. So any partner could go on to, the, you know, go online and find themselves a coach. And so I always had, you know, four or five clients um, that were internal and they could be leaders, they could be selling assistants, you know. Um, and that felt like a wonderful way to kind of give back a bit. Um, and I loved that. And so I went to Ashridge and, and you know, wanted to learn more. Um, and so, yes, part of it is the impact that you can have. So part of it is um, watching you know, a leader find out some stuff about themselves, about how they lead, um, and suddenly thinking, you know, and seeing people grow. I mean, that's just fabulous. Um, but it's also this connection back into different businesses in different sectors. I'm always hungry to find out <laughs> more about, you know, people and where they work and how they work. Um, I'm passionate about employee-owned businesses. Obviously, I you know, I support six of those directly because um, I genuinely think it's a better way of doing business. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, 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 I love watching people in different sectors and different businesses because um, I, I learn as much as uh, from them as they, they do from me, I think. so. On the employee-owned bit, obviously, mm. we haven't touched on it, on it loads. I completely agree with you. I think it's the future of sustainable businesses yeah. in the UK and those that can last a long time will be employee owned because you give yep. power to the people that actually do the work on a day-to-day -day yep. basis. What what made you fall in love with the whole employee ownership model? And what is is there something that you've identified in employee ownership as a whole that we're just missing out on as a trick in terms of marketing it to more founders and stuff like that? So so I think one of the things that that founders don't always realize is that, you know, they, they sort of can properly sell their business and they mm. can take, you know, so I think for quite, you know, they, for some of them, they believe, you know, it's just about giving back. They they get that. But then actually, if they're sort of selling it over sort of 10 years, it, that means that they can keep their business. And, for, you know, if you've, if you've put your life into creating a business and you know that that business is a really good one and you don't want it to be bought or, you know, merged or, you know, sold, it's a fantastic way of being able to then, you know, 
give your employees the power to then take the business to the kind of the next level. Um, whilst you, of course, can still, you know, because actually that, that sort of selling it takes a while. So you could still be a trustee and you could still share your knowledge and your experience with everyone. So, you know, it's, it's a great way, I think, of being able to transition businesses. But it also gives the employees such a level of empowerment you know, um, because genuinely what you do every day will help your business grow uh, and become even better than it was. Um, and you'll get rewards through the kind of profits, whether that's, you know, directly into, into you know, your pay or because actually you can then have some different benefits, whatever it might be. Um, that's I think that's so exciting. Do you think every business gets it right, though, that's employee-owned? So, like, one thing, it's the reason I asked. So, I think even when we went employee-owned, I think there was, like, a period of time where I, th- I don't think the employees got it. And yeah. to be fair, I'd probably still argue that even today, there's probably yeah. still a good number of the teams that don't actually really understand what employee ownership is. And yeah. I know we're dealing with a similar thing together on what we're working on. So, do you think that, what do you think businesses could do better around the whole actually feel making employees feel empowered when this change happens? Because ultimately, like you said nothing overnight changes no. like the founders or the shareholders they're still there what what would you say if i was now like one of your if i was now one of your coaching clients yeah we could do almost like a like an in the moment <laughs> yeah. coaching session but what would be the first things you'd say to me to say this is how to get your employees on board with this model straight yeah. away so i think you know it's going to take two or three years so the first thing to do is to talk to them talk to them about why why you've chosen to take this route Um, why you believe that your company, you want it to stay as it is and not be kind of merged or acquired. So what is it? You know, what is your dream? So share that dream with them. Um, And where do you where would you love your business to go? If, If it was still yours and you had another 20 years ahead of you, where would you like it to go? So actually you give them a bit of a vision. They may choose to take that vision in a different direction, but at least they've got something um, that they can start to think about. And then be there for them. But the the challenge is, so some founders find it really difficult to let go and others can't wait to let go and kind of run off and leave a bit of a void. So it's actually finding that right space about sort of being there, holding it still in your, in your hands, if, if you like, but actually allowing them to take those steps, particularly the new CEO, whatever, to start to, you know, chief exec, to to start to make it an independent business. Um, But then, you know, what are the baby steps to encourage people to start, you know, thinking for themselves, making that business their own, making it a little bit better? Um, And it isn't about really big things. It's about tweaking a process. It's about acquiring a new customer. It's about thinking about a little new bit of marketing whatever it is all of those are steps which are you know important ones to to start for them people to start thinking oh no this is ours now do you think it's like a demographic thing there as well because i think when we when we obviously announced it to the team and stuff i definitely think we found that the the people that were slightly older within the company they got it very quickly and they were like oh this is an amazing thing whereas those that are more on the younger side i think they were a bit like I don't really get it. Have I yeah. just got some shares now? I don't really get it. Yeah. And I think that's probably, and I don't want to blame demographics. No. I think that's partly on us as founders. The way we could probably communicated it, we could have mm. been a lot clearer. 
do you see that in other companies as well, that there is definitely a demographic split of those that actually understand it and see the value in it versus those that maybe really still are struggling to get it? Yeah, and I think people struggle. Sometimes they don't want it. They don't want, suddenly it feels like a big responsibility um, mm. that maybe they don't want. Actually, I just want to come to work and do a job and go home again. You know, please don't ask me to have to kind of make decisions. I don't, you know, yeah. <laughs> you don't pay me to do that. Um, or, or they want it to be a democracy. So actually they want to have a vote about everything. So, you know, every little decision, well, you know, we're, we're employee-owned now, so now we, you know, and, and that way, of course, you know, madness lies. So you have to <laughs> still have people that will make decisions on behalf of the business. Um, but that's why the trust board is so important that actually it's, it's there as a kind of check and balance um, to both kind of be a critical friend um, into the leadership of the business, but also to help and encourage. Um, so, you know, uh, uh, so I think, it, it, you know, it's a, if it works well, it's brilliant, but you know, it, it does take quite often two or three years to 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 really sort of start to fly. Yeah, I think we've seen that now. I yeah. think we're getting to a point where people are starting to slowly understand, and we're still having to communicate really heavily as a trust board as well. Yeah, but I think there was definitely a big lull period for a bit where people didn't really get it. Yeah, and I think no matter how much you communicate, I think there's still a bit of education there needed. So I think what you do as well outside of it, again, we've spoken about it, but mm -hmm. you go into organizations to give them a bit of explanation of what EO is, yeah. what, when it's happening and stuff. And I think that needs to happen probably more in the yeah. industry as well. Yeah, we really, really communicate. Don't, don't ever underestimate how much time you need to spend talking to people about the change. Over-communicate, um, I think over -communicate. is the word I've heard a lot But also time. don't, I think people do think, oh gosh, this is going to be really exciting and very different. And actually there's no switch. It, it's, you, you know, the, mm. the, the business will carry on as it always has done, but actually bit by bit, things will change. The culture will will change. It's but like a long-term thing, it isn't is. it? It's like certain just blocks of Lego yeah. you keep putting on eventually, it'll just be quite tall. Exactly. On the business side of things, mm. What are some like common misconceptions that you see that people have of like business leaders, whether that's founders or just leaders within business? Like, what common things you hear, and it's like that's just not how it is. So I think sometimes people forget that leaders are humans themselves, mm -hmm. um, and um, you know, genuinely, I, I haven't met many who want to do a bad job or make you know life really tough for others around them. That that isn't how people are. Um, I I think. You know, some people don't always communicate terribly well. Some people aren't naturally people that want to invest in other people, of course. Um, it is more about numbers or, um, you know, systems or whatever it is for mm. them. But, you know, I always say to people, look, you know, very few people come to work each day thinking I want to do a really bad job um, and I want to really, you know, hack everybody off around me. That's that's not how it is. But I think, I think leaders could take more time to reflect. Uh, I, I think the trouble is with, today is that you know business it moves so quickly you know it's everything you know through kind of email social media all these things it's really instant it's really hard you know when I think about when I first started working you had more time mm. to think about the decisions particularly long-term decisions that you wanted to make and really kind of think about the impact and how you were going to get there and now everything is just so much faster we forget we forget to reflect um uh, and I think, you know, if leaders could sort of spend a bit more time just, you know, going on a walk and actually, you know, recognising that on that walk for half an hour, they were going to think about a particular issue that they have within their business, they'd probably solve it and kind of come back more refreshed um, and with more energy. And, and you know, um, but we don't. We just it's constant. It, there's a constant sort of heads down. Um, and I don't think that's healthy. 
it's not healthy, I don't think. It must as well healthy for you because you obviously, I think just by nature of what you've done in your career, you've probably worked with a lot of high profile individuals as well. What does it make you feel, if you're comfortable with answering this, mm. but what does it make you feel when you read stuff about them in the news and stuff like this versus the person you actually know when you worked behind the scenes? Because I think a lot of leaders yeah. are also worried, especially if their company does grow or they become, you know, a lot of company leaders, especially are now becoming micro influencers across yes. social because that's a way for yep. them to sell their products. Yep. They could be scrutinized overnight. That's the business just gone overnight. It could be yes. anything. It could yes. be from not having a voice on certain topics and stuff like this. But obviously with the people you've worked with, naturally, they've probably all been dragged through. Yeah. Um, whether that's social media or just the news in general. How does it that make you feel, that side of it, compared to the leader that you actually know they are? Yeah. Uh, do you know, it really, it really saddens me because I think we are so quick to criticise. Yeah. We're so quick to, quick to find fault. Um, it's the bit of social media I find really hard is this kind of constant, you know, almost putting yourself up by putting others down. It's finger point. It is. And, and it's it's unnecessary. And I think, um, you know, people aren't very good at putting themselves in other people's shoes. Um, and, and, you know, it's one of one of the kind of coaching, it's a very simple coaching technique that I quite often use is, you know, saying to somebody, look, you know, genuinely sit and imagine that you're that individual mm. um, and, and how would they feel? How would they respond? Um, because, you know, these are these are good people. They've worked really hard for business. Um, and then I, you know, you see them, yeah, being flattened and it, it's, um, it makes me very sad. Um, yeah. Yeah, I guess on this topic then, what's been like your toughest moment as a senior leader throughout your career? Mm. But when you look back, you think, whether that actually resulted in something positive for you and development or not, but like what's been like the toughest yeah. period of your career? And I guess if someone else went through that exact same experience, what advice would you have yeah. for them now? I think I had two really. One when, you know, we were changing the whole leadership of, of both John Lewis and Waitrose towards the end of my time. And I had to stand in front of my function and tell them that basically all of our roles were redundant. Mm. Um, and these were people, I mean, we had, you know, literally hundreds and hundreds of years of experience in that room. Um, that was that was that was really, really tough. Um, and I think the other one was actually leaving John Lewis, you know, because it was, as I said, it was my work family. And so um, I didn't understand my value in the outside world. And I think you suddenly lose a bit of confidence. Can I do this? Um, and I'd also I think I'd thought very clearly I was going to be I was going to be a coach. And in fact, my portfolio now is coaching is an important part of it but it's much broader than that mm. um so I, I hadn't really thought enough about what did I really want what was important to me not just the work but connection with people working with people um and I now constantly if I if a new opportunity comes up I ask myself two questions can I add value and will it bring me joy and I have to have an answer, but both of those have to be yes for me to kind of go, right, this is the right thing to do. What's been the ratio of yes and no's for the, when you've asked yourself and when you look back, those two sides uh, of it? 80, 90% yes, um, but there's about 10% where, where there've been no's. I think as well for like a lot of leaders, like whether that's founders of companies that exit in the end or whatever, I definitely think there's a bit of a lull period where that happens and you think, what do I do now? Yeah. Like I can't just yeah, stop. Yeah. And people people just assume, you know, every person that sells a business automatically they've got cash thrown at them. Yeah. They're gonna go to the Barbados and live there forever. And realistically, these people, they've worked so hard to where yeah. they were. 
most of the time what they've actually made again is still like people think it's loads and loads of money and realistically yeah. it's not it's yeah. enough probably to cover them if they wanted two years out of work or three yeah. years out of work I think a lot of people just misjudge that, that whole transition bit and it's like yes. well what's next what am yeah. I going to do yeah what am I going to do now and I think these are questions that people really should ask themselves is yeah even if you're not a founder and you're just a leader in a company and you've been there for so long you need to figure out what is my identity beyond this because yes. I don't want to just be known as the person that was a senior vice president of this American company yeah. and then I leave and it's like oh that's it like yeah. that's what my identity was tied to agree how can people get better at that do you think so I so I think it's really important to kind of plan and really mm. think about you know purpose so you know the Japanese don't have a word for retirement you know your purpose in life constantly changes and I think that's really important I think we all need purpose and so, you know, why will I get up in the morning? You know, what's important to me today? Um, it's ikigai, isn't it? Ikigai, exactly, it. exactly. Yeah. And I think, you know, if you can think about that, you know, think about purpose. Um, and that might be, you know, working in a complete different direction. It might be doing some volunteering. It might be, you know, being a carer for your grandchildren. It, you know, whatever it is. But actually think about that purpose and think about constantly. For me, it's constant learning and constant change. Um Somebody once said to me, you've got to, you know, to prepare yourself for change, think about... So so every weekend I'll read a different newspaper. Um, I'll quite often read a biography of someone who I've either not particularly interested in or never heard of, because constantly, you know, it makes my brain think in a different way. And so I think if you constantly kind of challenge yourself, you know, you'll meet new people, new ideas will kind of come, you'll be... You'll feel fulfilled, and I think that's really important. I think we all want to feel as though we've got something to offer and we want to, you know, we want to be fulfilled. Um, and there are easy, sort of, you know, quite easy ways of doing that. Um, but it needs, it does need thinking about it, it needs planning. Um, and also it, it doesn't normally just happen with a switch again. you It will take probably two or three years. Somebody said to me, it'll take three years before your portfolio is even anywhere near where you thought it was going to be. And, that, and that's been true. I'm smiling because I just love... I love that whole, I just love the whole perspective side of it, that you're keen to find other perspectives. Because I think nowadays people, they're not, they're like, yeah. they live just through themselves. Yeah. Whereas I love the whole, you don't even know who they are. You might not even like this person, but yeah. I'm going to read their biography because there might yeah. be something out of there which changes yeah. my perspective on them. Yes. And I'm, like, I'm, I'm a big list. I'm a big believer in like just listening to other people's perspectives. Even if you disagree with them, listen to them, respect yes. them, take them in and see, can I make my own perspective better as a result exactly. of it? Exactly. And I think that's just not done enough. No, I agree. And that's why I loved what you just said. I think it's yeah. like a really interesting thing. The whole, I never thought of like reading something of something I'm not actually yeah. interested in. I usually default to, yeah. oh, I want to read this autobiography because I know the person. Yes. But I think I'm now going to, I'm going to go buy a yeah. book yeah. of someone that I have no idea who yeah, they are. And read that book. So that's yeah, interesting. Um, this has been really interesting. Thank you for this. And I think it's definitely something that not just employer and companies, but just companies that want to focus on people can listen to I think a lot more and just take from I guess I, I mean I do this for every episode mm -hmm. but like what are three things that the listener could do tomorrow to help them become either a better leader or mm -hmm. a better entrepreneur that you think are just non-negotiables so look at every every single person within your organization you know really how well do you know them really know them know you know what makes them tick what what's important to them in their outside life and can they bring some of that in and enrich your business in some way um, the second one would be reflect. So actually take some time out, um, walking or just, you know, when you're, I don't know, traveling to work to really think about a problem within your business 
Um, and can you kind of solve it or can you find a little group of people that can help you solve it so that your kind of your business can constantly evolve and become better? Um, and I guess that, that that third one that we talked about, you know, be open to change, be open to new ideas. Don't get stuck, um, you know, and find simple ways of kind of getting your brain to, to think in a different way and to take new perspectives. And, you know, um, because then you'll just, you know, you, you'll 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 keep you'll keep learning, but then you'll keep, you know, you'll you'll keep your business fresh. I've loved this. How can people, if people want to either get in touch with you because they want support or they yep. just want to understand a bit more, how can people reach out to you? LinkedIn is probably the simplest way. Just, you know, I'm, I'm on LinkedIn, Helen Hyde on LinkedIn. So um, I'm very happy to, you know, to, to link up with people and, you know, have conversations. And I love virtual coffees, so I'm <laughs> always open for that. Awesome. Thank you, Helen, so much for being on the podcast. Oh, my pleasure.